This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, July 16, 2010. I'm Caleb Brown. What binds Tea Partiers together is the federal government's profligate spending and accumulation of debt. What divides Tea Partiers is how best to provide security for the U.S. and whether our wars are justified. So, says John Samples, director of the Cato Institute Center for Representative Government, it's well past time for everyone to treat the military as a true fiscal issue. Well, I think uh, what holds the Tea Party together as as a spontaneous uh, movement is the concern about debt and deficits. There was a concern that was sparked by the health care reform when people began to uh, realize about a year ago what that meant. And I think people sort of started to say this was an actual problem rather than just something that might happen in the future. So that that's what bol- binds together a bunch of people who have different views about uh, other things. Tea partiers are sharply divided on war. That is the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. I think it's uh, it would be correct to say that you would expect that many people who identify with the Tea Party are going have in the past. Uh, supported both uh, the Iraq and the Afghanistan wars. Uh, I not it's not clear to me now that those uh, two wars are either uh, very salient or important for the for these people, or that the support for it is as widespread as it was in the past. I think you don't. One of the interesting things is. You don't hear people talking much about it in uh, Tea Party events, and you certainly don't, at least I have not seen, and you don't hear about Tea Party events um, making the case for staying the course in Afghanistan or Iraq. And in Afghanistan, they certainly, it's been on the front page. You could have, uh, you would have heard that, I think. Is part of that the fact that the management of the war, that is the commander-in-chief of the armed forces, is now a Democrat, and Tea Partiers, who are more likely to uh, be Republicans, are maybe less willing to hold water for a commander-in-chief who is is managing a war that maybe in their heart of hearts two years ago knew was something that was, I'm referring to Afghanistan, of mm-hmm. course, mm-hmm. knew that something that was going to be a, a far more challenging war to uh, emerge victorious from. The evidence we have from the past is never underestimate the importance of partisanship in changing people's minds or changing their behavior or leading them into behavior that's not particularly coherent or rational. So, yeah, that's true. I would expect some of that. One of the odd things about both Afghanistan and Iraq was that the wars over the, if you look back 10, 20 20 years, uh, both wars were justified by President Bush with rhetoric that was really drawn from the other party, from the liberal tradition uh, and uh, from things Democrats had said in the 70s or 80s. I think, and it and ran pretty much against what a lot of Republicans or George W. Bush had said even in the 1990s, I think uh, there was a case of whiplash uh, for Republican voters. That is what they'd been against. They were suddenly supposed to be for. And that was always there in the background, but they got in line for the most part and uh, became um, uh, more pro 
rather pro-war. Now I think that's probably, you know, in a sense, those wars, I think uh, everyone knows, have now are just running out of time and running their course. We had three Republican congressmen on stage at the Cato Institute earlier this year saying that they recognized uh, the Iraq war to have been a mistake. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot more Republicans now are willing to say that uh, Afghanistan is uh, a mission that has gone astray and that maybe needs to be wrapped up sooner rather than later. Why has this not become more of a fiscal issue uh, in terms of, of trying to talk about uh, the war as in, in, in the context of debt and deficits? Well, I think if you started talking about these wars in those terms, it would rapidly become apparent that uh, in the background, everyone knows at this point that uh, in these two wars, the United States uh, and the leadership of the United States, and above all, the citizens of the United States, no longer believe that the cost of achieving certainly President Bush's original grandiose plans or even um, something more reasonable, the cost of doing that are simply something that the American public's not going to pay. They don't see the benefits there. And we, we've, so we've run out in this, these two long wars, we've run out to that point. So thinking about it in those terms would make that evident and that would be said in public. And I don't think the leaders at this point are willing to say that. Um, the other side of it is that it would also uh, put, in some ways, the Republican coalition that had been so recently for war would would uh, go to the other side of it and define it and frame the war in terms of, uh, you know, fiscal conservatism, which would require, again, a big change. And I think maybe voters are ready to do that, uh, but I'm not sure the leadership is. Terrorism in the years of uh, our most recent President Bush was cast as an existential threat to Mm -hmm. the United States, to uh, the way of life here. It's hard to come back from that. It's hard hard to then say, oh, well, that's not worth it. Right. And I am convinced that one of the things uh, for some time, but particularly since 9-11, the Republican Party sees... uh, were part of the Republican Party, saw it as a political advantage to offer to American voters a, a security, national security, security from terrorism. Uh, so in a sense, to walk that back or to give it up is to give up a what was thought to be an advantage in that you can't tell voters, well, we're going to make you more secure than the other guy will. Um, that politicians are pretty loath to give up Uh, what they think to be advantages. Heading into the elections, uh, these midterm elections in 2010, is there anything that can be clearly said about uh, fiscal conservatives, the war, and uh, what these candidates are out there saying? Well, the one interesting person here is in so many other respects, I think, is the Senate candidacy of Rand Paul in Kentucky, And he has at various times made two points, which I think um, are relevant and and especially on point for 
libertarians, conservatives, people like that, which is that he does not deny at all that the the Constitution clearly gives the a power of national defense to the federal government. It's a one of the prime, uh, you know, if you think about Article One, it's one of the two clearly defined spend, uh, taxing powers that, that are in the Constitution. So he understands that, but then he says, because the federal government clearly has this power and it's constitutional, doesn't mean we have to be supporting several wars and 750 bases worldwide. So the two have to be separated, and you need to think about, yes, it's a uh, constitutional power, but that doesn't settle any questions. And then I think he's pointing toward what is a reality, which is that uh, we're in a tremendous fiscal bind and that defense is going to be cut. Uh, In the history of the last recent history of the United States, last 50 years, defense has in fact been the only budget line that moves a lot and can move a lot downward as well as upward. Most things just sort of stay steady or increase, but defense can actually go down, which tells me that in the struggles over budgets, uh, defense has a harder time, contrary to what you might expect. So I think when the pressure comes, defense just even from just political pressures, is going to be reduced. The question is, is it done legitimately? Is it done in response to elections? Is this said to the voters beforehand? Are we talking about different strategy in which a a smaller defense makes sense, the kinds of things people in foreign policy at Cato talk about? That's the only question. I, I think the pressures are going to be such that we're going to see uh, a pulling back on defense spending. The point has been made many times. Uh, Friedrich Hayek made the point as well. That is, uh, if you're struggling over uh, a, in in the short term, a finite pie, in order to, in the political context, get your budget filled or maximized or growing, among all the budget items, yours must right. be the one to, to take care of first. But in the case of uh, terrorism, national security, the threats that are argued about uh, on parts of the, na- the defense budget, uh, it, it really is the case that I think that President Bush has made those kinds of arguments much more difficult to make. Remember his in the fall of 2002, in the run-up to the war in Iraq, uh, he evoked the image of a nuclear weapon going off in the United States because uh, the federal government didn't do its job on defense. Uh, and then you had the Iraq uh, weapons of mass destruction that were not found. I think, uh, and then it's been a long time also since 9-11, uh, I think the you, that, that kind of threat is has to be existential and eminent, in a sense, or within living memory. Uh, and th- frankly, the other side of it is it, people like Rand Paul can redefine this pretty easily because the threat, the fiscal threat, is at our doorstep also, as um, my colleague uh, Jagadish Gokhale has made pretty clear. Uh, so I think these issues can be redefined by a sufficiently capable uh, set of political leaders uh, who have the will to do it. John Samples is author of The Struggle to Limit Government. He is director of the Cato Institute Center for Representative Government. 
You can order your copy of the book at cato.org.